All right, uh, last week we had uh, a discussion on chapters 11 and 12, uh, including Jephthah was our major character focus last week. Anything that we haven't covered in the first dozen chapters, either from last week or from previous weeks that you've been thinking about for the last six and a half days, and you've been waiting for this opportunity. All right, so we've covered it thoroughly. Um, Let's talk about Samson uh, tonight. But before we talk about Samson, this final major character in the book of Judges, it seems to me that, and I've had a number of conversations with different brethren over the last few days as we've been progressing towards this study of Samson, who is, he gets more territory in the book of Judges, more attention is given to him, four chapters pretty much are devoted to him, whereas some judges get a verse or two verses, uh, but he gets far more attention, and there's almost a, a audible sigh when someone says, we're going to study Samson. There's this deep breath you let out because, like some of the other judges, he's a complicated character. He's not straightforward. He's just not all, all the good stuff or just all the bad stuff. There's this healthy mixture, although it's not that healthy, I guess, of wrong and right that we have to figure out what are we supposed to get. I was just talking with Ben Ray, and he said that they've been studying judges with their children, and you get to these points and you say to children and to adults alike, don't do that. Don't act that way. Don't make those kinds of choices. So give us some phrases, some words uh, of what we know about Samson, or what, what is our initial response to Samson? And I, don't, I hope I haven't shaded it too much already, but what do we think about Samson? A man of strength. He's, he's certainly known as a man of strength. Absolutely. Is that me or is that someone else? Not me. Okay. At the end, coming to his senses. We'll get to that next week, Lord willing, in chapters 15 and 16. Very good point there. Brother Allen? Absolutely. More is known about him. Well, we know about him before him, right? We know about him before his birth with Noah and his, his mother. Um, absolutely. So there's something to be said about that. Other things about Samson. Character? Bad temper. So uh, we're going to look at some tempers tonight. And is that me? Okay. So I'll just stay put, and whenever I move, someone yell at me. I'll just go ahead and pull this off for now. So certainly something to be said about that as well. Other thoughts about our initial introduction to who Samson is? Yes, Brother Mitch? He has a sense of vengeance that is used by God to save his people. And that's a very good segue to the point that I wanted to make that Brother John and I were talking about just a few moments ago as we were thinking about Samson tonight, and that is... Um, we will see the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord, or, or the Spirit of God, or some, some phrase related to that, working in Samson. So we're going to get into that as well. So one of the questions I want us to ponder is, even though Samson makes some poor choices, and I think we all agree he's going to make some poor choices. If we don't, you haven't read the story yet, right? All four chapters. 
God uses Samson to do something that is uh, part of his plan, part of his providing for his people. And how do we reconcile those two things is the question that I want us to not answer yet. But as we progress through the story, we want to address a little bit. Let's go ahead and get into the text in chapter 13. If there's nothing else we wanted to say uh, at the outset of our study tonight. All right, let's get into Judges chapter 13. First of all, I've talked about the cycle. also want to talk about the spiral. Because I was reading this last week, the week before, that in many ways, this cycle repeats itself. And you, those of you that have been here at least two, three, four weeks, you've seen this two or three, four times because I go through it every Wednesday. That it's almost like a spiral downward. As the cycle continues, it spirals down. Last week we saw where you had seven nation, seven national gods referenced, little g gods. And the idea that the people of Israel were getting more and more and more involved in idolatry and giving themselves over to more and more evil. And so in addition to this circle, it's almost as like it's a spiral going down into the ground. And I thought that was kind of a neat little picture as well, just to kind of have into your head like a tornado funneling down. Um, Let's read chapter 13 and let's read the first five or six verses here. We're going to read probably a little bit more tonight than we normally do. I think we're going to have time to do so. Um, but because we're so familiar with the story, sometimes we miss certain things. So we're going to try to, to maybe pick out a couple of things that we haven't noticed before. Again, there's a big word there. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to deliver, deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So let's just pause there for just a moment. Um, as is often the case Each judge starts with a transitional verse, either but the children of Israel or again the children of Israel or then the children of Israel did evil. And how long were they going to be plagued for? What was the the period there in the first couple of verses? 40 years is is a long time. And 40 in, in, in biblical terms is kind of a good round complete number, right? We know that you look at Moses in 40 year segments, for example, um, you have, uh, 40 days, 40 nights, you have all those different uh, 40s that appear in Scripture. What's the problem with Mrs. Manoah? She's barren. And we talked about this in our study of Genesis, that this motif or this story of the barren woman is repeated yet again. She's not the first person to not, to, to not have the ability to have a child. And as is often the case in ancient societies, she would receive the blame for that. It's not a medical condition. It's, it's your fault because you can't have children. And it's a very serious thing. Your identity as a, as a human being, as a female, was tied. Your value was tied with your ability to bear children. Then in verse 3, 
And uh, Lindsay's not here tonight, so Josh, make sure Lindsay hears about this. Uh, or maybe she's teaching tonight. I don't know what, what the case is. But uh, Lindsay asked me about the angel of the Lord just uh, maybe five weeks ago at one particular point. But here we have yet another appearance in verse 3 of the angel of the Lord who appears to the woman and gives this message. Um, this is not the first time the angel of the Lord has made an appearance. I made reference to chapter 6, verse 11. Who was the central character in 6, verse 11? Yeah, that's Gideon, right? Gideon is the key character in chapter 6. Remember where the angel comes to him and delivers that particular message to him. Uh, I'm going to talk probably in more detail about the angel of the Lord probably in May. So just remember that. Don't forget. But I do have, I'm going to do some, some, some angel sermons starting in 2022 and Sunday evenings. And so probably April or May, June will roll around to, to who the angel of the Lord may be. But I thought we'd just point to point that out here. Let's talk for a moment about the Nazarite details. And if you've gone back and glimpsed at Numbers chapter 6, the first two dozen verses or so, you see where it is detailed. But generally speaking, am I not correct that someone who is a Nazarite is someone who takes that choice on his own and says, I, I will take on the role of being a Nazarite. Whereas in this case, before he's even born, he, his mother and father are told he's going to, to have this, these limitations placed upon him. What are the, the limitations? And I, I count three of them. There are three major things that you either can't do or, or things you should do, depending on how you phrase it. Yes, Brother Allen? Okay, no, no dead carcasses, no dead animals, no dead anything, right? Okay, so there's a prohibition against that which is dead. What else? What's, what's the most famous one when it comes to Samson? Cutting of hair, no razor shall touch your head, right? So the length of his hair becomes part of the narrative as we get into chapters 15 and 16, right? And then what's the third one? Can't drink or have any contact with, not just with, with wine that is intoxicating, but my understanding is even grapes themselves. You're supposed to be separated from them. So the three of them, and I put them in reverse order, just that's the, the, the way I chose to put them. Wine prohibition and grapes, that which is related to the vine. Cutting of the hair is prohibited as well. And the dead animal prohibition. So here's the question, and I was, and I was thinking about this yesterday as I was reading a little bit. Um, why? And, we, and, and if you don't know the full answer, that's okay, because I'm not sure I know the full, full answer. I have some theories on it. But what's the significance of this? Absolutely. And what would happen if he cut his hair? If you haven't read chapters 15 16, plug years. Right? You lose your strength, right, in, in his particular case. Sister Tali. Until, to my understanding, this is an abnormal situation for it to be, uh, Brother Bruce here, Lee, um, for it to be non-voluntary, I guess involuntary, and for it to be the mother has to meet those prohibitions as well. Yeah, good point. Brother Bruce? I, I was uh, 
puzzled by that, but then I got to thinking, you know, the mother, what she takes in her body uh, during the pregnancy affects the child, mm -hmm. and we're finding that out. We knew it here, mm -hmm. uh, and God knew it before, but uh, the child could become uh, addicted to Absolutely. Yeah. We see that today with, with, with babies that are born that have certain dependencies on chemicals because of the choices of their mother, right? I should have put um, the, the word that's in my mind is the word separate. And the key to me is that Samson is going to look different. He's going to be different. That's one of our big applications uh, that we're going to get to at the conclusion of our study is we are to be different kinds of people. So, and Brother Mitch here. So we get caught up in the details of, of the Nazarite vow, and there's nothing wrong with that. And because number six outlines it in great detail, but it seems to me the real big message here is, Samson, you are going to be different because you're going to be the savior, and I'm using the little s savior, not the big s savior, of the people. Brother Mitch. Verse 2 in Numbers chapter 6 talks about uh, the vow of a Nazarite is to dedicate themselves to God. And uh, God is dedicating Samson to his work from the beginning That's a great point. Uh, with this message. Um, but it seems like, because uh, again, in the Nazarite vow, it's for a spe specified number of days. This is going to be for the entirety of Samson's life, so similar to Samuel. Um, yep. But Samson seems to just treat it as a, a way to keep his supernatural strength. Very good. Very good. Excellent. Excellent. And I think we, that's, uh, Mitch is my segue person. He's given me all these segues to, to the next points that I'm trying to make, and I appreciate that. And that is to only look at Samson as the long-haired strong man is inadequate because we don't get the full picture of who he is. And, and I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that it's wrong that a, if, if, if a five-year-old can tell you that, that's good. But by the time you get to be 25, you need to have a little bit of a more uh, depth to it than that, and then further from there. Okay, uh, let's read verses 6 and down through when we stop. Um, so the woman came, and oh, by the way, the woman's name is, trick question, right? We don't know what the woman's name is. Here's this very important woman in the history of Israel, and we don't know her name. That's not that uncommon in the narrative as outlined by biblical writers. But God knows who she is, and that's what matters. And, you know, that's, that's the key here. A man of God came to me. Do you notice anything between verse 6 and verse 3? Verse 3, the angels of the Lord appeared... We know that there are other times that angels appear and that they appear as men and that the person who's receiving the message from the angels thinks she's receiving a message from just a, a man of God. And I, I don't want to say just a man of God, but more on that in May or April or June. When I, I didn't look to see when that's going to be. A man of God came to me and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God and I love the New King James Version. I'm not sure what you have in the ESV and the New American Standard, but the New, uh, New King James says, very awesome. Anybody have a different phrase there in verse 6? Very terrible. Very terrible. That's the old, uh, older translation, right? That's the idea of calling God terrible, right? Because God is terrible in that sense. And I remember studying with someone a few weeks ago, and we, she was using that, that version. Is it the King James Version? Yeah, first edition. Right. Very good. <laughs> How old are you? 
<laughs> Autographed. King James himself. Bruce is not allowed to talk anymore tonight. <laughs> Take his talking privileges away. No, I'm kidding. We love Bruce. Um, but the idea that God is terrible, I remember that someone reading from the King James says, what do you mean God is terrible? No, it means, he, it means he's, he's a God of fear. He's a God of reverence. He's a God of awesomeness. But I, I love the new King James Version here and, and New American Standard and ESV and those guys because... You know, we, we say, wow, the weather today, it's awesome. Or, um, you know, we have all these things. Oh, lunch today, it was awesome. Lunch is always that way, right? Um, but God and a man of God and an experience like this, that's awesome in, in the truest, biggest sense. He says, so she says, it's very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he didn't tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive a bear son. Now drink no wine, similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. Going back to what Tali pointed out a few moments ago. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb of, to the day of his death, which is what Brother Mitch pointed out. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord. So Manoah kind of is the, um, well, the, the two main characters here, the three main characters. You have the angel, this figure of God. You have Mrs. Uh, Manoah, Samson's mother, and you have Manoah. Manoah prayed to the Lord. I think there's something to be said just for verse 8. Manoah prayed. That was his response. He prayed. He says, Oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. Um, Someone pointed out, and as I was reading over this the last few days preparing for tonight, this is probably not the last time any parent ever prayed Please help me to know what to do with my child, right? Every parent prays that, you know, help me to raise them the best way possible. This is a little bit supernatural, though. Not a little bit. This is very supernatural, what has transpired here. Uh, God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. The woman ran in haste, told her husband, and said, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he says, I am. Manoah says, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? The angel of the Lord said, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. So go through it again, verse 14. A divine, similar drink, anything unclean, all that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said, please let us detain you and we will prepare a young goat for you. Remember, this is uh, in the era of hospitality. We talked about that in Genesis a lot. If you do not show hospitality, that is uh, a no-no in their society. And you don't say, you want to stay for a while and visit in hopes that they don't. You want them to stay because you want to show that hospitality to them. Hebrews chapter 13 says... Um, that we are to entertain strangers because unwittingly we may uh, entertain angels. This is one of those occasions where hospitality seems to be the more familiar instance is, is of course, with Abraham and and Sarah. Uh, Verse 16, the angel Lord said, though you detain me, I will not eat your food, but if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. So there seems to be some ambiguity, some confusion here over him. And I don't have all the answers to that. Um, Let's stop there at verse 16 for just a moment because I want to get to verse 21 in the end of the chapter. 
thoughts thus far, questions that you may have. I have a couple of things that I wanted us to, to highlight in verses 6, 7, and 8, and 9. But other thoughts, things that you wanted to bring out in the text. So the first thing that I wanted to bring up is, as you read through verse 6 through around verse 12, 13, 14, you see this confirmation of the angel's visit to Manoah. And what was the angel's name? He doesn't actually, well, the angel says, why do you ask my name? He says, my name, but then goes on to say, my name is either described as or my name is what? Wonderful. Turn over, if you would, to Psalm 139. Some of you may have thought about this particular passage when you were reading this. Um, I thought about it a couple days ago. Psalm 139. And verse 1 is, is relatively familiar to us. Psalm 139, verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know my sitting down. You know my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. The whole point of the early part of this uh, psalm is that God knows all things. He knows all things about us, and there's nothing that we can do to escape from God because God is all-knowing. He's he's omniscient in that very uh, powerful way. Drop down to verse 5. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And then he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Um, There's a number of passages. You have Jeremiah 10. Uh, You have another passage that's gone beyond my mind right now that talk about how God is superior and we are inferior and his ways are wonderful. It is my understanding that the word wonderful in uh, the book of Judges chapter 13 is the same word that is used here in Psalm 139 verse 6 as a characteristic of God. So, Another application that we can make is incorporate into your private prayer, Lord, Father, God, you are wonderful. And understand that in saying that he's wonderful and confessing that about God, that he's beyond comprehension. That you, you are just so incredible and I am so not incredible. So if you can work that into your prayer, maybe that's one thing that you can, you can work on and that I can work on as well. Anything else in the first uh, uh, two-thirds of of the chapter? Because I want to drop down to verse 21. All right, let's drop down to verse 21. Actually, let's go to verse 19. Uh, Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, offered it upon the rock of the Lord, and he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened, verse 20, as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar... The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar, and when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Why did they do that, you think? Sorry? Astonished. That's a great word. Maybe someone would say fearful, uh, surprised, amazed. Um, They had just had this incredible experience, and now somehow they see it go up in... The flame and ascend away, and they fall to the ground. We would probably do the same thing if we were witnesses to this particular. Yes, 
this is now a turning point. Very good, Miss Sherry. Because in verse 21, when the angel of the Lord appeared no more and his wife, the Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Because remember, there's a parenthetical statement, at least in the New King James in verse 16, Manoah did not know. Now in verse 21, Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Verse 22, Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. What's that all about? And live, right? Right? We have the famous instance where Moses is hidden in the cleft and God says, you can see the back of me, but you can't see the front of me. There's a number of those instances uh, in the Old Testament, the idea about seeing God and living. Uh, One day we will see God, the scripture says, as he is. And we will experience that and it will not destroy us. It'll, I think probably the opposite, It'll, it'll... Revive us more than we've ever lived before in such a powerful way. Uh, his wife responds without reading verse 20. How does his wife respond? He's, he's, he's scared. Absolutely. Hey, if, if that was going to be the case, we'd be dead already, right? Yeah, he wouldn't have accepted the sacrifice. We would not have had the conversation. We would not have had this experience and this conversation to transpire. Verse uh, 24 uh, Samson is born. The child grew. The Lord blessed him. The Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Maniah, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtael. There's uh, the phrase, verse 25, that we'll get into, I think, in the next slide. Yeah, next slide, where it talks about the Spirit of the Lord to move upon him. Other thoughts in, verse, in, in chapter 13? Verses 1 through 25. Yes, Brother Jonathan here. Uh, Lee, um, in the back. Maybe something to consider in uh, reading from Samson is that God is giving us, um, and always did frequently throughout the Old Testament, pictures of what the Messiah would be like um, in, in a variety of ways. And in, in Samson's case, you have a number of parallels, obviously, to the Messiah in that um, there would be a supernatural birth um, that's told to the mother in advance, in that the child is set apart from the mother's womb for for doing the father's will, um, in that, as you just read, that the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him. Just so many things. These things pile up. Absolutely. And I think the what the Lord's purpose here could be is that he's trying to give the children of Israel, a picture of what their Messiah will be like. And so it would be very familiar to them when the Messiah would come on the scene. And it should have helped them recognize him as the Messiah. And to reject that is it, it shows that they're rejecting even their own scriptures and their own history and everything that God had done throughout time. Um, and, and, of course, convicts them and anyone that rejects Jesus. Um, but I think it seems that that part of where we're seeing this excellent. story the, here. Excellent observation. And um, remember that as, as Brother John's taking us through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that most of the people that Jesus is interacting with, was interacting with, would have been very familiar with these scriptures. When they talk about the scriptures, 
make reference to the scriptures, when Jesus opens the scriptures, when, when that phrase is used in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's not talking about the book of Galatians. You know, the way we talk about, open, your, open the scriptures to Galatians, you know. It's talking about the Old Testament, what, we, what we're reading right now. So that's a really good observation. Anything else on uh, Brother Bruce here, Lee? And we'll give Bruce's speaking privileges back. I hope I don't muddy the waters, but I've heard a lot of preachers talk about the angel of God being Christ. Did Isaiah 9, verse 6 pass through your mind as you studied when the angel said, my name is wonderful? Um, yes, it crosses my mind. Um, Isaiah 9, verse 6 particularly says, For unto us child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. That's not the only passage that comes to mind, and it's not one of the top three that come to mind. But, yeah, very good, very good point. That's not muddying the waters yet. Okay, all right. Let's go ahead to chapter 14 in our final uh, 12 minutes here. Oh, the other thing here is God keeps his promise. He always keeps his promises. He says, you're going to have a son. Sure enough, they have a son. All right, let's go to chapter 14. We will not read all of chapter 14, but we'll read a good portion of it in our time together today. Samson is looking for what? Or, yeah, he's looking for what? I don't, that's not disrespectful. He's looking for a wife, right? He's looking for someone to be with. And it says, he went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So already we have an issue, right? Yeah, Brother Mitch? My comment would be, I don't know that he was necessarily looking for a wife. Okay. It seems like he just saw this woman. That's fair. That's very, that's very fair. <laughs> that's very fair. very impulsive. We, and let's face it, we as men sometimes can be kind of impulsive. Human beings and men in, in the male gender uh, idea. But I think, that's, I think the word impulsive is a really good word to point out here. So strike the next phrase, uh, which says, Samson seeks a wife, but he does go to the wrong place, Right? When in if he if he is looking for a companion, looking for someone, or at some point going to be there, whether that be his intent or the reverse of that, like Mitch was talking about, what's the problem with going to the Philistines? The absolute opposite of what the Lord wanted. Did the Lord ever speak about that in previous places? It was commanded in lots of places. Um, I'll put those scriptures, I'll put like two scriptures up here in just a second. But before we do that, look at verse 1, daughters of the Philistines. Verse 2, daughters of the Philistines. Verse 3, uncircumcised Philistines. Three different times in three different verses, the word Philistines is used. I think the author here, whoever he may be, the God, the Holy Spirit, wants us to get the picture that these are people that, going back to what Ms. Sherry said, are the opposite of what the Lord wants and what the Lord needs. So three times of that phrase of the Philistines is used. Go back to Exodus 34. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. It, you will see where it is commanded that indeed you shall not marry with these women of the Canaanite nations, of the foreign nations. And in case someone was confused, he's very clear as to why. He even he delineates in the text by saying, you might begin to serve their gods or 
because you've married into their families, uh, have a, a tolerance for their religious practices. And that's a very dangerous thing uh, for anybody that wants to serve the Lord. Um, verse 3, his father and mother said, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. We begin tonight, and now as we draw to a close in our final you know, eight or ten minutes, looking at the character traits of Samson. Do we learn anything about his character here in verse 3? And I don't want to read too much into it, but I, I, to me, it, something speaks in verse 3 to me. He wants what he wants, right? Uh, Brother Mitch used the word impulsive, and I, and I like that word very much. Anything else we learn about his character here in verse 3? Right. He's, he's throwing caution to the wind. He's got his mother and father who, who seemingly are spiritually minded people based on chapter 13. And they respect the Lord. And uh, we have every reason to believe that his mother uh, followed through with the very things that uh, she was commanded to do while she was um, pregnant with Samson. And they say, let's find someone else for you. We got lots, lots of young women here in the local congregation who are fine for you, right? And um, I like the way Jonathan put that. Um, There's also something culturally, and you can go back to, I think it's Genesis 26. I didn't write it down. I didn't put it on the screen. There's a couple of places in Genesis, granted, that's in the patriarchal age, but there's still some carryover of those patriarchal um, mannerisms of the way that parents train their children, that if a father says no, that's the end of the story. And you don't go against what your parent says. And so in some ways, he may be violating the rules, the, the social norms of the society in which he lived. That's another thought that uh, I came across today as well, thinking about this. Verse 4, and this is where we're probably going to uh, maybe end our discussion tonight. We may not get to the rest of our study. But this is what I asked you to think about 30 minutes ago. How do we reconcile poor choices impulsive behavior, doing what he wants, with verse 4, it says, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord that he, the Lord, was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. And we'll see this play out throughout the rest of the story of the account. How do we reconcile the fact that Samson's making these poor choices but yet God is going to use the poor choices to accomplish his mission. He's going to use the results of those choices to accomplish his mission. How do we reconcile that? Brother Mitch and uh, Lee's on, on his way. And then after Mitch, Jonathan, did you have something? Or you, we'll, go, we'll go start with Mitch. We'll come back to you. I think you do it the same way that you consider uh, Pharaoh in Egypt and the same way you consider Jehu who uh, you know kills the the wicked king and Jezebel? Um, God is an all powerful, all knowing God, and these individuals still have free choice. They could decide to enact God's will as He is directing them in a correct way, in a way that would be in accordance with His Word. But God knows the character of the individuals, mm-hmm. and as an all powerful God, He can use 
either the good choices or the bad choices, to still fulfill his will. Very good, very good way of putting that. If you want to take that back to, to Jonathan. Thank you, Mitch. Okay, Mitch said it, so I'm going to take it to Jonathan. Um, absolutely. I think that's, I, I could not help but think about uh, Pharaoh as well. Um, examples in the Old Testament where God uses bad choices. God even uses evil nations to render judgment on his own people. Remember the whole issue with Hezekiah, or not Hezekiah, um, Habakkuk, um, uh, who says, this doesn't make any sense that you are allowing a foreign nation to plague us. And God says, I'm going to work something that you would not even imagine or be able to comprehend. And so many different prophets go through that, that same kind of thinking. Uh, so I think that Mitch makes a really good point. I wrote down in my notes here that idea of free choice or free will, which I think is so important, Brother Allen over here. Because one of the things we can't argue is that, which is what someone, what someone may come away with, is that well, Samson didn't have a choice. He was forced into this, and that's not the case at all, Brother Allen. Yeah, I think, obviously, from 13 to 14, there's a big gap in, in time from him being born, and now he's old enough to take a wife. But you get the impression that he's just not been doing it. He's been prophesied from birth that you're supposed to deliver the Philistines, and he thinks, no, I, I should marry into them. I should take them. Mm-hmm. He's not doing it right now, and so you might get the impression that God says, I, I will force your hand now then. Mm-hmm. If, if you are not going Excellent to do point. it, I said you would, we'll do this differently. Yeah. And it's, you know, rhetorical question, thank you, Alan, rhetorical question, and one that is, you know, a good Bible study question, is there anything that will ever stop God from getting his job done and getting the purposes of, of the Lord done? And the answer is, is of course, no. He'll, he'll get it done one way or another. And he will not allow... Uh, He'll not allow the righteous to be consumed, the scriptures say. He'll not allow his plans to not unfold as he wants them to unfold. And that's one of the great things about having the completion of the entire text is we get to see the whole picture and see all the different potential roadblocks in the way. God says, I've I've got a plan. I've had a plan even before there was a world, even before the universe existed. Verse 5, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. Um, Samson went down to Timnah uh, with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. And to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. We'll talk about the lion here in just a second. But verse 5, anything strike you there? The vineyards, yeah. You know, what's he doing in a vineyard? What's he doing around a vineyard? You know, if, you're, if you are a good Nazarite, one who is like, like either Mitch or Alan or someone pointed out, not just separated to be different, but you're dedicated to God for his purposes. And you see a vineyard, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk on the opposite side of the street, opposite side of the field. I want to stay away from that. So I just put up there with a question mark, is this an early glimpse of his violation of the vow or of the ways of the Nazarite? Um, and it seems as if, it, and that's going to appear a, a couple of times when you think about the three things. In fact, all three of them will at some point be violated, right? All, all three aspects will, will, get, will take a hit, okay? Um, what happens with the lion? Walk me through the next, oh, eight verses or so. The lion roars is what the New King James says. says he was surprised by it. 
He didn't, so he's surprised by the lion's roar. And then what does he do? Kills it barehanded, right? He's a, just kills it. The Bible says like he would have torn apart a young goat. Now, I've never torn apart a young goat. But apparently, for those that are goat terrors, um, that's easy. And a lion, which, well, a goat's not going to fight you back. Well, it, it may kick you, but it's not going to bite you. Well, I guess it could bite you. I don't know. I've never, like I said, I don't have any experience with goats. <laughs> Miss, Miss Diana over here. Uh, and I uh, want to get your thoughts. But in all seriousness, joking aside, he did it with simplicity. He did it with his strength that he's well known for. Miss Diana? I, I was just going to say that I had never thought about it before. But isn't it interesting? He walks into the vineyard and all of a sudden mm. a lion appears. God. Yeah. Maybe this is part of that God testing him, planning. All, and, and then because... This isn't the end of the lion story, is it? Because after the lion is dead, he's going to come back and visit it, which is a problem because of what? Because of the vow, because of the ways of the Nazarite, which is to not engage with a, a dead carcass. It's a really good observation. I hadn't thought of that angle before. So thank you, Miss Diana, for bringing that up. Uh, so he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Speculation of why. Uh, then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. We've got a, a minute. We can finish this thought here. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion, he took some of it in his hands, so he's making physical contact with the, the carcass, um, and then came to his father and mother, gave them some of it. They also ate, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. We'll stop there at verse 9. Um, I'll mark them for next week. But thoughts on that in our final you know, 30, 45 seconds. Uh, Ms. Sharman here, Lee, in the very front. Thank you, Lee. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a question. Uh, weren't they, even the Israelites, not supposed to touch a dead carcass? Mm -hmm. So, What makes the Nazarite so special? He didn't want to tell his parents that he just pulled honey out of a dead. That, that's a good question. That, and that goes back to the speculation. The question is, is, is why did he not want to tell his parents? Uh, and we know that there's something about Israel and dead bodies in the first place and all that kind of stuff. So let's, let's think about that. Why did he not tell his parents? Let's actually explore that. I haven't really thought too much about it. But let's think about that. Let me write myself a note. And we'll pick up there next week. Great question, uh, Ms. Sharman. We'll stop there.